when I was on the road, everything was about making the bike go faster. And <laughs> I was um, I had a bit of peace and I got home and I was reading Harriet, my daughter, a bedtime story. And um, I finished the story and uh, I said, night night, Harriet, gave her a kiss. And uh, I said, I said something like, is it, is it, is it good, ha- good having daddy home? Uh, I don't know why I said it. And she looked at me straight in the eyes and she said, yes, daddy, but you keep saying that. Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason Gravely. This episode's really exciting because Mark has been personally a huge inspiration to me. He he is um, just a legend, just a total legend in the world of cycling, the world of endurance and adventure sports, and just, you know, your general adventurer as well. Uh, he's done some incredible things, including what we're talking about today, two circumnavigations of the globe on bicycle which is just mind-boggling. And you're thinking if you're if you're thinking to yourself, you know, how do you bike around the world because there's oceans, don't forget about those. Well, that's, you know, that's a great point, but Guinness World Record put out this kind of parameters for for around the world cycling which basically says you can't deviate too far from where you start as far as uh you know if you if you go around the equator you got to kind of stay within five to ten degrees north and south and then also it has to have a minimum number of miles that you cycle which is eighteen thousand. and so mark has um done that faster than anybody which was just under 80 days 79 days the first time he did it it was you know Almost pretty much twice that, uh, and the second time he he shaved quite a bit off of it. But if you want to hear more standard, like how did you do it? What were the highs? What were the lows? If you want to hear kind of more of that standard, you know, overview of the adventure itself, uh, I, I would encourage you to look at a number of different, you know, short films that have been made, interviews, podcast episodes. Uh, anytime I have someone on the show who who has done so much as Mark and has been, you know, talking to media for 20 years like Mark has, um, I, I try to do it just a little bit different, make it a little more interesting for them as guests because, uh, you know, you, you, you might get tired of telling the same stories every day. But this episode I, I thought came out really incredible. Uh, Mark is just honestly one of the most incredible storytellers I've ever heard. So it was a super, super exciting, enjoyable um, episode to interview him. And uh, I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. But if you want more of what he's talking about and more specifics around each of his adventures, including these circumnavigations, there are a ton of resources out there. And also, I I encourage you to check out his book. Uh, But anyway, enough of me talking about this. Let's, uh, Let's start talking to Mark. And by the way, we jump just kind of right into the conversation. He and I are talking, we're recording the whole time, and at some point I was like, oh, you know, the interview's pretty much already started, so here it is. It's, it's, it's funny because um, if you cycle around the world twice, you know, it doesn't matter what else you do in your life, that's what you're going to be known for. And um, it's funny. I mean, I've got buddies who are Olympians and have done all these, you know, buddies who have climbed Everest. And it's, there's something about if you do something which is so easy to remember, like it's got that ring about it, like nothing else really. 
And, and there's worse things to be known for at the end of the day. If, if all you're going to be known for is cycling around the world, I can live with that. No, you're, you're right. I think it's the the ability to share it. If you don't, uh, this is a tangent, but Alex Honnold, who climbed El Cap, El Capitan in Yosemite a few years ago, free soloed it. That was uh, very close to the same time as another athlete, Tommy Caldwell, who did the most difficult route on the same rock, and it took you know 19 days longer. You know, Alex Honnold's climb was two hours. Don, Don Wall. The Don Wall, both, exactly. Both amazing films. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Both amazing films just happened to come out at the same time. We were able to get Tommy on the show, and by all accounts, Tommy's achievement was more impressive in the sense of the difficulty, the sheer planning. I mean, they both were just off the charts. But after, you know, going into depth about both of them, Tommy's, I was like, man, that is an incredible story, but it's harder to tell and it's harder to remember. And I think that's why the skyrocketing popularity of what, what Alex did was because the sheer, how easily it was to communicate. I climbed this rock, this mountain with no help, no, ro- no ropes, no anything. The danger was so real. Um, so I, I think that might be part of it too. Just around the world in 80 days is so easy to communicate with people. Yeah. And for someone totally unfamiliar with the sport, they can, they can grasp that. And I, and I've, I'm all, I've always been, I've always been keen that my stories transcend my sport. I think it's so easy to live within your sport. You know, I'm passionate about sharing stories. I mean, for sure, I'm an athlete. My, my, my passion has always been firsts and fastests and trying to, trying to do things that have not been done before. I've always been inspired by the idea of re- not just repeating history, but really shifting the dial. If you, if you look at my track record, and this is not like, a, like an ego point, like I've never tried to break somebody's record. I've never tried to pip. I've always gone out there and gone, how can you do this fundamentally differently? And it's why... Both times I've cycled around the planet, I've taken, you know, months off the record, um, even going the Cairo to Cape Town world record or some of these other big trips. You know, I've got huge respect in those that have gone before. You know, you you learn from history, but you just don't base your targets on it. You know, you also go bottom up planning. What What's the art of the possible here? And I guess what I'm most proud of with my teams over the last 15 years is that quiet confidence to just be really disruptive, to get out there and take a fundamentally different approach and just to, to then share the stories in a way which is relevant to more than just other bike riders. Like I always want to put these stories on, on a wider platform and share it in a way which you get, um, you know, it's as much sharing the stories about the people and the cultures and the places as it is, you know, my physical journey and, and, and that of my team around me. I think, you know, it gives you such a unique perspective on on the planet of the places you're going through. I mean, these expeditions have taken me to 130 countries, and you know that's a privilege. And I I, I genuinely want to be able to share that in a way which gives people the quiet confidence to push their own ambitions. Which is not going to be cycling around the planet, but it's going to be the best feedback possible is when people turn around to me and say, you know, you gave me the license, you gave me the confidence to do X, and it was their passion, something they wanted to do, and they turned an idea into reality. That's the best feedback I can ever get. When did that start for you? Have you always been this way? I guess I guess not because I was I mean I was homeschooled until I was 12. So I was in on a small farm on the foothills of the Highlands of Scotland and I didn't have like I didn't have normal I mean my friends were my two sisters because we just didn't leave the farm. We, we we lived and worked on the farm until I was 12. So when you don't have a playground, when you don't have normal connections with the world when you don't have those formative experiences 
I didn't grow up thinking, you know, what's my place in the world? Because I was kind of shut off. And um, I was doing adventure sports because I was like just a feral kid. I was just, you know, on the farm working hard. I was outside way, way more than I was inside, uh, you know, horse riding, skiing, cycling. You know, they were a big sport part of my life growing up. And so then when you don't, you don't interact normally and build, you know, normal friendships until you're a teenager, that's really late. So I was kind of out there on my own doing all this stuff, climbing mountains and getting into sport, like adventure sports in a big way. But then when I started to do expeditions, what I loved as much as the actual trips themselves was getting to, um, well, the planning phase, what went before, um, trying to support like, you know, good causes and, and charities and, uh, and then afterwards getting to share my story. I genuinely got a buzz from that. And I don't know if it was just this little sort of homeschooled kid who had never had that level of interaction. I'd never been in the playground before. I didn't, I didn't know what those like social structures were like. So when I, when I sort of first experienced that as like a 12 year old, when I first cycled across Scotland or my, I did my first thousand miler down the length of the UK when I was 15, there was nobody to tell me that that wasn't normal. I was rubbish at like football and rugby and all the sports you're meant to be good at over here in the UK, but I excelled at all the adventure sports and all my friends looked at me and were, were like, you know, you're not kind of sporty in a normal sense. You can't do team sports, but for some reason, like you're good at all this crazy stuff. And it, it gave me a, it gave me a place in school in high school when I was really struggling, you know, you imagine what that transition's like. So I guess I'm, struggling to answer your question but have I always had that I had a I had a, a unique upbringing which gave me a a great sense of independence and self so I could go and do this stuff and then when I was old enough to express myself I kind of got a real buzz out of sharing the stories and I, I've always enjoyed that so, so you didn't have these natural boundaries that were would socially just you know be implanted in kids so you didn't set these limits on yourself that other kids probably did based on just peer-to-peer -peer interaction that would let them know, hey, this isn't normal. That's really fascinating. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, it's interesting because when you grow up, you don't think about these things. You don't, oh, no, have any, you don't have any context. But now I've got my own kids and I live in a city and they go to a normal school. Of course, I can see this incredible freedom that I had interestingly i've got two sisters and we've all grown up to be very different people uh, with different sort of views on the world and you know i think nature nurture you know that's an episode in itself but the biggest um freedom i had was my mother not saying no don't be crazy like you imagine when you have those little acorns of an idea as a kid kids have crazy ideas every day and you know what if you turn them into 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 actions if you you know sometimes they're going to fail sometimes they're going to hurt themselves but guess what they're going to learn so if parents say no you never know what that idea will become 10 20 30 years down the line so i'm 38 years old and i can very clearly look back over my entire life and there's a chronology it looks sure-footed it looks professional it looks kind of inevitable that's not how life feels as you live it you know uh, you know, I'm riddled with the same insecurities and the same, the same, you know, the same strengths and weaknesses that that we all are as human beings. But I, but I guess when I was a kid, 
So when I turned around to my mum, Yuna, when I was 11 years old and said, I want to cycle the length of the UK, which is a thousand miles, you know, rather than saying, don't be stupid, go and do something else. She said, why, why don't you try something smaller first? Because you've not really cycled off the farm before. And um, so she supported me. She supported me to ride coast to coast across Scotland, which is only like 130 miles. Uh, but as a 12 year old kid, it was cool. And um, over the next decade, these ambitions grew. And you, you can imagine when I graduated from college age um, to, uh, 22, 23, this had grown into the, the freedom that I could cycle around the planet. I could go 18,000 miles. And guess who the first person who then came to work for me on the business? My mom. She worked for me, with me for like 12, 13 years as what I call base camp. And the team grew and, you know, I've worked with a lot of people over the years and the projects have become more complicated and um and expensive but you know family's always been at the heart of it because you know i had that license for my mum just to as you say not say no just just give it a go do you find it hard as a parent to to reflect that same attitude your mom did i mean uh, yes because i'm not homeschooling my kids um and you know we're we're just not in the same in the same physical space we're not in the countryside on a farm but i do try and um I do try and still and um, develop the same sense of curiosity in my kids. They've got it naturally. You know, so when we go for a walk, you know, I really encourage them to not walk on the path. I, I you know, if, if, if they say, can I go up here? The answer is yes. Can I climb that tree? Absolutely. So I'm, I'm always encouraging them to follow their curiosity. And I'm often asked, what would I do if my daughters turned around when they were 16 or 18 and said, hey, dad, I want to cycle around the world? And I, I mean, I've thought that through at length and I'm very clear by the time they get to the age where they have that independence of mind and want to do whatever they want to do. It doesn't need to be sport, but, you know, whatever they're passionate about. I, I plan that we've had enough shared experiences together that they know their own mind and their own body well enough to back themselves. The only reason I would worry about my kids is if I hadn't had that those shared experiences with them, because um, people come to me all the time. You can imagine. I'm sure they do. They, they contact you as well and just say, I want to do this. I want to row an ocean. I want to cycle around the world. I want to climb Everest. And I say two things. I say, look, shoot for the stars, you know, dream big. Absolutely. But learn your trade. Genuinely learn your trade. Like there's no shortcuts. You know, this is not sort of the Instagram world that we all watch. You've got to be able to know yourself and back yourself in really challenging circumstances when you're taking on major expeditions. And if um, if you can build that awareness of who you are and make mistakes and mess up when you're in the, you know, when, when, when you're a kid, I, I, I worry about people who are so protected from, you know, the dirt and the dangers in the real world that guess what? You, you know, you can't just, you can't just become that in a single moment at some point in the future. So I, I'm always cautioning people. I'm saying, do it absolutely, but build up to it. And, you know, I was lucky to start early and have the support of my parents to build up. It sounds like it was them that really opened this door to you or, or didn't close it at least, you know, maybe that door yeah. was open for you and encouraged it in a, in a, in a way that, that's so fascinating. That's great to know as a young parent. That's very interesting to hear, and it's something I think about a lot. What am I, What am I going to tell him when he wants to do the thing I wanted to do? And and knowing the dangers now, knowing how naive I was, knowing how 
frankly yeah. stupid I was for doing it and, and how legitimate my parents' fears were. <laughs> I need to make sure that I'm ready to say yes too, no matter how hard it's, it is. It's so hard. It's so hard to swallow your own fears with your kids. It really is. But um, but there's something there's something so powerful about sharing those adventures. Uh, tell me, have you had Ricky Gates on the show yet? Ricky Gates. I know who you're talking the, about. The, no, I haven't. Okay, you should get him on. You should get him on the show. I was um, so the, uh, um, about a year ago when COVID kicked off, and um, we were just starting to lock things down in the UK. So that was like February, March time. I was listening to the the Rich Roll podcast, and he had Ricky on, who's a, a US ultra runner, adventure runner, and he, you know Ricky's run coast to coast, but then he took on that project to run every street in San Francisco. It's a pretty amazing story. Yes, um, yep, I watched that. That's right. Yeah, it's worth it's worth checking out on YouTube. Anyway, I was sort of in lockdown with my kids. I mean, I I would typically before that travel every week. I was away half the time, and suddenly I was here with my kids, and I was like, you know, what what am I going to do? My my whole world's just fallen off a cliff. I'm not going to do all my big expeditions and films and travel for the year and events. And then I was listening to Ricky, and I was genuinely inspired. I thought, run every street. So I um I picked out the A to Z of of Edinburgh, you know the the capital of Scotland, and I um I mapped it out. It's not quite as big as San Francisco, but my 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 twist on that story was I um I said to my six year old daughter, I said, hey, let's let's rather than just coming out for a cycle, like she would cycle her bike and I would run, why don't we try and just do this area? And it became like a little puzzle. And over the next three months, we went out five or six days a week, typically an hour at a time. And I would like run a 10K. She would just ride her bicycle. And we we covered every single cul-de-sac, every road, every roundabout, every street in Edinburgh. And, you know, I was messaging Ricky as we went and telling him about my um, my adventures with my daughter. And it was quite cool to see like my neighborhood, my my city, but in a very unfamiliar way. Um, but the best part of it was I spent over 100 hours with my six-year-old daughter you know, me running her, her cycling, just, just shooting the breeze, just talking about the world, just reflecting on stuff that, and, um, it was a horrible time for work. It was a horrible time for so many reasons, but, but to do something as a project, like a genuine project, not just like, let's go for a hike today, but like over three months, just father and daughter do a project and take on our entire city. Hey, I mean, that was, that was the best thing last year. For someone who's done as much as you have, did, did you find it fulfilling like you would other adventures? Oh, 100%. 100%. That's great news for the people that can't cycle around the world. I'm often asked that. Like people often say, do you know what happens when people meet me? They always put themselves down. So mm -hmm. the first, like whenever I, whenever I do a talk, the first thing that somebody says after me, after the, like I've finished and I'm doing a book signing, the first thing they, they reflect on something I've said. Oh, that story you told me about capsizing in the Atlantic or free riding down the side of a volcano. The first time they, thing they say is always about me. The second thing they say is always about their own ambitions. And it's fascinating when you do this thousands of times and meet thousands and thousands of people. People live life with one eye in the mirror. And what I mean by that is you follow other people or you're interested because you're interested in yourself. You're interested in pushing your own ambitions and figuring out your place in the world. And there is no scale. Like, okay, for me, cycling around the world was my Everest. You know, that was what I built up to through my career. But you could get the same emotional response. You could get the same sense of fulfillment from riding a century or from doing an Ironman or like 
whatever that is in terms of magnitude for you, based on your life experience, your physical ability, you know, who you are, the the like the emotional response, the endorphins you get and 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 the memories, the, the memories memories that you will take with you for the rest of your life, you can't put them on a scale. Like it's not one's bigger than the other. And just because I've cycled around the world twice doesn't mean that's my biggest memory. It just happens to be the longest trip, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I, I, I 100% what you get about that. We we hear it all the time with this show. And, you know, I've, I've done things, but frankly, it's nothing compared to some. And, and others, you know, I talk to people who get, it sounds like they have more fulfillment, more joy in their voice when I talk to them about a marathon versus something that, took me six months to do, you know what I'm saying? So it's, it really is relative and it really is, um, it's just finding what it is for you. I know it's, I know it sounds, I don't know, overused or, or, or cliche, but it, but it's true. Wow. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, so, you know, I'd love to jump into or talk a little bit about what, what led to riding around the world that first time. I know you've probably told these stories a hundred thousand times, but it grew to the point where that was possible and you you did it and you absolutely crushed absolutely crushed the record why did you beat the record by so much rather than just barely beat it you know what i'm saying yeah i mean i think i think to be honest if you'd interviewed me on the finishing line in paris at the arc de triomphe back in 2008 when i finished um I would tell you that's the fastest I could ever cycle around the world. I'd left it all out there. It was the hardest thing I'd ever done. 194 days. 194 days. Um, You know, because it was, it was the hardest thing I'd ever done. But, you know, now with a bit of perspective, um, you know, it it looks like kindergarten. And I I don't mean to patronize the first time I cycled around the world, but it is genuinely um, (laughs) a, a case of putting in perspective in terms of who who I am as an athlete and the teams that I've worked with over the years. And it kind of fits neatly with your previous question. Like one, one is not better than the other. They just happened at a different point in my life. And I had more experience and I went faster the second time by a significant margin. But let's put this into context. In my book, the ultimate, the ultimate sort of cycle journey is the circumnavigation i mean we can argue all day long about all the great bike trips on the planet but you know the circumnavigation how fast you can get around planet earth you know that's 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 the world that's the that's the biggie and i've always when i was a when i was a student i wasn't setting out to have a career in adventure sports i didn't know how that could even be a thing and i just thought I want to go on one big trip to end all trips. And I thought, if I've only got one chance, let's cycle around the world. And the only reason I looked at the circumnavigation world record is because I assumed that the guys and the girls who had gone for the for the record would be the most professional, have the best route, you know, have the best information. So I just researched the best because I thought, well, then I'll take those ideas and I'll do it in my own more amateur way. I mean, I was a 22-year-old guy. I'd grown up in the age of Ellen MacArthur smashing the round the world sailing record. So I assumed that the round the world cycling record was similar. I thought it would be the most professional coveted record in the cycling. And yet going back, you know, 15 years now, it wasn't like when I first spotted it, 
and not to be un <laughs> not to be unkind to anyone who had cycled around the world before that on the record, but you know, the record was two hundred and seventy six days. And um for an eighteen thousand mile record, um, which um I said, not to be unkind is is pretty slow. Um <laughs> you just do the maths on it. It's not it's not fast. So it wasn't it wasn't really that it was me being super professional. It was more of a feat of entrepreneurship than being a good athlete. I just spotted something that people hadn't done properly. And I was like, wow, what, you know, hang on a second. I could break a world record. And then I walked into the BBC and managed to somehow get a, a documentary commissioned. And, you know, the rest was history. I went off and I said I was going to ride around the world in 195 days, which was based off a really crude plan of riding 100 miles a day for half a year and then taking a day off a fortnight and it worked I came home in 194 days and 17 hours so the comparison is I broke the previous record by you know a couple of months but I broke my target by eight hours which when you're out there on your own like trekking style carrying all your kit going through you know sleeping in mosques in Iran under armed escort skirting the Pakistan Afghan border around the Helmand I mean this was a proper adventure. And then, you know, you come home within eight hours of what you said you would. And it really made me go, hang on a second. Is that really my personal best? Or have I just done what I said I'm going to do? And from that day since, it's made me kind of obsessed. You can ask my team. It's made me kind of obsessed with this idea of, as an athlete, you'll always justify where you end up. The only way to really do it well is to, is to figure out the art of the possible before you start and then and then read it off script and you know I, I had 40 people working on <laughs> it's crazy when you compare because the first time I cycled around the world I was on my own and I'd like my mum you know at home with a phone and you know her laptop at the kitchen table and that was kind of it the second time I went around the world around the world a few years ago you know, there was 40 people working on that project it cost a, a lot it took two and a half years in the planning I had a media crew based in uh, Cape Town. I had, um, you know, my on the road support crew, normally eight people at a time. I'd base camp back here in the UK. It was a huge logistical media and, you know, performance task. But I boiled it down to 75 days riding, three days flights, two days contingency, which if you add it up gets to 78 days around the planet. And um, um, yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> The record is 78 days, 14 hours and 40 minutes. So I know that's like a bit glib. That's a bit of a short way of saying it. But I've been okay. kind of obsessed by this this, <laughs> this this idea that even for an 18,000 mile race, you know, just you, you got you to gotta really dial the plan and then just just live it. Just absolutely live it. And um, I, I guess I feel lucky that my career started at a time when there wasn't such mass interest in these things even 15 years ago for sure i mean over the last 100 years there's been phenomenal endurance and adventure bike riders but for some reason the circumnavigation had been missed out and um well you couldn't just graduate now and head off on your own and break the record it's become professional but i was lucky when i first spotted it it was it was pretty amateur and i i got my chance it reminds me of that uh I think it's Parkinson's law that that talks about the the work will fill the time allotted. Uh, you know, you have a job, you allot you know a certain amount of time. No matter how 
much work that is. You you fill you fill the time with the work, and it will be completed with how much time you give it. You gave yourself 195 days that first time, and you hit it yeah. right on the money. You did yeah. it with 80 days the the second time, and you and you hit that right on the money. It, it probably made you start to think how what what where could I have shaved? What could I uh, really do this in? And I'm sure that can uh, that can drive you crazy if you're not careful. Oh, as an as an athlete who's obsessed with breaking records, this idea of you'll never do better than what you set out to do it drives you insane. Because you can talk about marginal gains and you know changing this and that and aerodynamics and nutrition and all the different factors, but but ultimately, it's just about being ruthlessly consistent. You know, just turning up every shift and doing the time. And there's so many things as an athlete, as an endurance athlete, which are outside of your control. You just got to believe, deeply believe that the long-term averages will take care of themselves. And um, as human beings, you couldn't live with yourself if you didn't justify where you ended up. So there's always a, a, a there's always a case of sort of um, just making it fit. Like you know, I left all out there. I did all I could. You know, it couldn't have ended any other way. But that's clearly not the case. If you're if you're honest enough with your own performances, you know. We only affect a minority of our performances, you know, the the environment and everything else and how our psychology plays into our physical performance. It's 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 fascinating. And as your endurance increases, as you go from, you know, a, a, an event that's going to be over in a couple of hours time to something for me that lasts for months and months and months and months, you know, the sleep deprivation and just your immunology and all the other factors which allow you to to be consistent, to perform it's just it's it's fascinating it's immensely fascinating so so for setting the first record you, you did this self-supported it was all on you you know thousands of miles from the people you love or care about or know and then the second yeah. time was was this totally different setup with a crew and, and an rv and, and and a second bike and just logistical nightmare which of the two not, I don't even know how to describe it. Is it harder or or more challenging to figure out, or more challenging to to finish when you say you will? Which which of the two are are your style now? And, and you know, there's beauty in both, I guess. Yeah. Okay. I'll I'll answer your last bit first. Wait, what's my style now? I would say somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in the middle. I, I would I would say I would say the full on old fashioned trekking like big heavy bike, five pannier bags, you know, cook stove and just the works that I had the first time around is not something I would readily go back to. It's amazing. And I knew nothing different at the time, but it's pretty slow on the grand scale of things. And you don't need all that stuff. Um, the extremes of the round the world in 80 days, do I need to keep doing that to myself? I mean, people often say to me, Mark, I'd love to do what you do. And I, I always sort of, jokingly say i think you like the idea of what i do i mean like honestly riding 240 miles a day every single day for two and a half months getting up at half three in the morning riding from 4 a.m through till 9 30 every single day for two and a half months it's kind of torture you know you're time trialing for 1200 hours if you mess up in any one of those four hour blocks you can say goodbye to your 80 day record so the pressure the, the the pressure from my team, myself, the, I mean, the finances, it was just, I couldn't mess up. Like, it was just torture at times. And yet, it was exhilarating. And it was everything I dreamt of. So I can't really sell around the world in 80 days to anyone, you've got to 
madly deeply want to do something like that because it's not it's not fun in in a normal sense of the word so so where am i going with this um if at my perfect place in terms of being a bike rider is probably something like the africa world record which i broke a few years before which was carried to cape town it was six thousand miles and that was ultra light you know carbon di2 setup with frame bags completely unsupported still needing the friendship of strangers still completely connected to the culture and the and the world around me but 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 still going far and fast every day so that's that's the perfect place for me um which is sort of like a halfway house between the two but but you got to put these these trips in order i couldn't have done them the other way around like the the around the world in 80 days was a was a culmination of everything i'd learned in my career i mean if you'd said to me when i was a 22 23 year old kid when i first cycled around the world that one day I would go back and do it in 80 days. I would, I mean, I told people for years and years and years, I will never cycle around the world again. Why would I do that twice? And yet when I came to do it, it couldn't, it might be the same thing in terms of the record, but the experience was a million miles apart. And let's be honest, the first cycle around the world was a better adventure. It was a much better adventure. It was not just a better adventure because I had time to soak it all up. I was riding a century every single day for half a year, which is plenty of time to still do stuff off the bike. And the real adventure was stuff off the bike rather than on the bike. Um, but it was also because of where I was in my life. Like I was, I, I'd never really traveled before. I'd done a bunch of stuff in the US and, and Europe, but I'd never, I'd, ne- I'd never slept under the roads in Turkey or, you know, been with armed guards or, cycled through the Australian outback with 3000 miles of headwind and woken up with huntsman spiders in my tent. You know, it was just a proper, I ended up in so many weird slash dangerous situations in that first cycle around the world, which was just such a coming of age. I, I will never have another expedition, which I experienced in the way I did. I mean, I always say to people like, just really appreciate those first expeditions. Like just try not to live them through social media especially your first couple of big trips because they're such important memories for for your own personal experiences and the more you go on the more you crave that same sort of that same view on the world by the time I came cycling around the world the second time you like I saw the world like a slideshow I, I didn't stop anywhere I mean I was just a yeah. machine on the bike racing did you find that difficult? Because, you know, you mentioned 240 miles a day w- w- with this tenacity that is unnatural in most people's lives. It's like a tenacity of, of a of a football game that's 90 minutes, you know, but for, for, yeah. for 80 days. <laughs> I can't even imagine. It's, it's, a strange, it's a strange headspace you end up in because, you know, no, nobody could pay you to do that. It's not the sort of thing in life where, you could do it because of the fame or the fortune, not that cycling around the world, you know, it's, there's, I always say to people, if the sum total of your ambition is to, is to pay your mortgage and get by, then, you know, don't, don't do, don't do the, these sorts of things. <laughs> right. <laughs> Easier way to do it. You've got to, you've got to have a real fire in your belly to, before you get to the broadcast, before you get to the sponsorship, before you get to the professional elements of it, you've, you've got to have that kid inside you that wants to, prove something to yourself and you know it's not the same for everyone but I do find that I do find that people who have a a real mischief in them a real sort of 
want to prove themselves not in an ego alpha sense but like have that have that want to you know when i when i'm on an expedition or i'm on a trek and i see someone like when the chips are down you know it's storming and it's really awful and i look around me and like somebody's just got a bit of a wry smile and you can see their humor's building and you're like i i i get it like and you make a connection and it's not everyone that does that um and i i don't know what that mischief is that allows people to really sort of not relish but thrive when you're under pressure there's i've seen it time and time again in the high mountains in the oceans in the arctic in the deserts in difficult places where you've got to fundamentally want to be there it's not just being an athlete and being strong and sort of gym fit but 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 you've got to sort of mentally have put and i and i i do find that people who thrive in these environments tend to be not running away from something but they tend to have something in their formative years that makes them very have a real independence of mind and that doesn't mean you can't be a team player but 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 you do you really do need to think for yourself and be able to operate under a lot of pressure when when um when i was putting together my team team for the around the world in 80 days so so we had um every morning we took loads of loads of um samples to basically see how i was like um saliva samples and you know stood on scales and i would take bloods at certain points and we were just basically saying like as an athlete can i keep doing what i'm doing and my cortisol level so my stress hormone was (laughs) sky high (laughs) throughout the trip now normally as you say like if you were playing a ball game or you were like a a sprinter you know your cortisol would be significantly elevated for that period of performance but it's pretty abnormal for an adventure athlete for an ultra endurance athlete to have such an elevated cortisol level for two and a half months i'm not sure what it does to your uh longevity putting yourself under that amount of strain but anyway we we when you look at my numbers my bloods and my saliva samples over two and a half months i was living you know, I, I don't just need to say anecdotally, it was pretty stressful and I was massively sleep deprived, but you can see the numbers. Like I'm just in a weird place, like that ability to get the blinkers on and just, just stay in the zone. But, but you've got to, like, I, I ended up shunning company. I really struggled actually through Canada and the U S was, was kind of the hardest because I was back in the English speaking world. By that time, the fame of the trip was building so many people wanted to come out and be a part of it. So every day, tens, if not hundreds of people were just showing up at the roadside with, you know, homemade cookies and banners and wanting to ride ride the bike with me, which was phenomenal. But I was in a harder and harder place as the race went on. And you imagine people join you and they want to just talk. They want to say, oh, how was Mongolia? How was, you know, Russia? You know, they would, they, and also towards the end, starting to celebrate the finish, even though I'm like, 2000 miles away from the finish so when you as an athlete take yourself out of the the race and suddenly become sort of almost an ambassador for what you're doing you, you can't do both so I felt like a bit of an asshole like at times I, I said to my team I just can't I can't do both I can't I can't be the guy on stage sharing my story but also really commit to what it takes to be this sleep deprived and to perform for 16 hours a day as an athlete and my Laura Penhall my performance manager who's worked at five Olympic games she was like well of course like I would never have my Olympians you know running their race with the fans running alongside them having a chat like it's only in the adventure world where you get that crossover where you know I think it's amazing when people come out and support me but but 
but being honest it's sometimes hard to put yourself under that amount of pressure to perform but also to relate well to the world around you and only people like that's why you pick your performance team so carefully because you need people who get it you need people who understand what that pressure is like so fascinating i never would have thought about it that way that that it did build momentum towards the end there especially towards the end when you got close and that's when it's most crucial not to not to mess up you know you're sprinting to use the restroom sprinting to to eat to yeah flying they're like hey you've got 80 days what are you rushing for um i remember i remember i was i landed in lisbon in portugal and it was 1100 miles to the finish and um i had uh you know four and a half days or something to get through portugal through spain up over the pyrenees and back through france and everyone was just talking about the finish the finish the finish the finish and I was so relieved. I'd just finished five and a half thousand miles from Anchorage and I was just beat. I was in such a dark place. Getting on that plane was such a relief. And I landed and I got through the first couple of days. I was picking up momentum and then I had an awful day. I turned north from Madrid. I got food poisoning. I was I was being really sick on the bike, so I couldn't keep the food down. I was into the headwind for a long, dark day. And then at night, about 10 o'clock at night, I was coming off this pass. I'd climbed for most of the afternoon into the headwind. And then I came off the pass. It was super late. I'd already been on the bike for 17 hours and I crashed. I just hit something in the road and I crashed. Didn't help that I hadn't kept food down and I was feeling pretty weak. But I was just so angry with myself. Like I was just beside myself with anger. My team were trying to, you know, get me into the support vehicle and check I was okay and check the bike. And I just grabbed the bike and got back on it and finished the descent. It was reckless. It was really reckless in retrospect. But I was just so angry with myself because you can imagine for two and a half months nearly, you've been focused and you know if you mess up in any given second, the entire race is over. And there I was like two days from the finish and I had a crash which could have uh, could have ended it all. And honestly, the, the outpouring of emotion and that, you know, what it meant was was pretty evident for everyone. Did it feel out of reach at that point? Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, str- I'm struggling to, to even find a way of describing it because you know, it meant so much and it had been such a singular focus for so long that by the time I got there, that final day, I almost lost focus. Like it was almost, it was almost unbelievable. Like I couldn't, I was looking at, I met a big bunch of riders near Versailles and then into the outskirts of Paris, met the police escorts and, you know, all the flashing lights and full like red, red carpet treatment for the finish. And I was sort of, I was sort of looking at everyone around me who were just beside themselves with excitement and the fanfare of the press. And um, it was like you were watching somebody else's party. Like it was just like, like they're feeling what I should be feeling. And I, this is always the case at the end of big expeditions and projects. But, you know, the 80 days was probably the greatest where you think you're going to pull backflips. You think you're going to be euphoric. You think it's going to be the culmination of those 10,000 times that you visualize the finish. And when you get there, all you feel is an incredible heartfelt sense of relief. It's just this weight that falls off your shoulders. And I know that sounds really ungrateful and unglamorous and almost like it's not worth it, but I don't know. Like maybe it's maybe it's good it's that way. Maybe it's good that it's your family and friends who's who are doing backflips for you because for for yourself at the heart of these projects and the team who have made it happen, 
it's just this sort of quiet sort of contentment and a, a sheer heartfelt relief that you've done you said what you said you're going to do and it's it takes time to get any sense of perspective on it wow mark that was that was incredible when you said uh they're feeling what you should be feeling i know exactly what you mean but it is that weight off your shoulders like you have been rescued or just this stress yeah. this this yeah this relief oh man that that's the addiction I think to me to getting to the finish line the next time is that that sense of relief again. Mm. And I think, you know, a lot's been said on this topic that, you know, of course, we've got stresses and strains in our life, but we don't really have anything which in a primal sense is is threatening or difficult. And so you've got to go out and find adventure. You've got to find meaning. You've got to put yourself in situations which gives you a sense of purpose. And I always, you know, visualize arrows pointing in and arrows pointing out like arrows pointing in is a good thing you know you've got to have a sense of sort of self and focus and that internal dialogue but you've got to get arrows pointing back out into the world as well in terms of like what's the impact you want to create in your you know your friendship groups your family your your community and and your work and I think that metaphor is really powerful when it comes to these big challenges or whatever work you do in life because it does ground you like you you've got to be obsessed at times in your life you've got to get the blinkers on you got to you got to do things which are quite purposeful personally but then you've also got to think well you know what's the what's 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 why does that matter like you got to join it back up because it's so easy in the expedition world and the adventure world to live a very isolated life to to forget to join things up and i mean i'm sure you know it as well a lot lot, lot of endurance athletes and adventure athletes these things can sort of be a silo of your life. They can sort of be a sort of something you do, but it doesn't join up particularly well with everything else. And I think it's quite nice to realize that, you know, when you do finish these big projects, it does mean so much to to to, to many other people. And you have put yourself under a lot of stress. I mean, there's that sort of that other response where, you know, seen as the finish isn't what you expect it to be, you better have enjoyed the journey. And there's a lot in that as well. But I, I do think it's always worth remembering when you put yourself in harm's way and you do things which are difficult like this, that other people do care and and there is a wider purpose to it. And um, I find that really grounding because when you come back from these expeditions, and this is the bit that's rarely talked about, it can be really unsettling for a matter of weeks, if not months, because for a period of your life, you've been allowed to, you know, be completely focused on one task and a routine that's allowed you to do what you do. And then you come back and everyday life's not like that. So it's, it's incredibly unsettling. And that's when I use that metaphor of like, how does it all join back up again? And, you know, how do you, uh, how do you, how do you find meaning in all these things? I remember when I came back from the 80 days and there was that media fanfare for a couple of weeks and weeks and it just went on and I was you know I was just needing a bit of space but I just got into that mindset where you know when I was on the road everything was about making the bike go faster and I was um I had a bit of peace and I got home and I was reading Harriet my daughter a bedtime story and um I finished the story and uh, I said night night Harriet gave her a kiss and uh and then I said um is it good uh uh, I said I said something like is it is it is it good ha- good having daddy home uh 
I don't know why I said it. And she looked at me straight in the eyes and she said, yes, daddy, but you keep saying that. And it was a wonderful moment from a child where I was just like, ah, yeah, get over yourself, daddy. You might have cycled around the world, but you know, there's other things that matter in life. And it took like a five-year-old at the time to tell me that, which was quite cool. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. It's, uh, it's hard to know what this is all like if you haven't done it, but um, for for you now that that you are have done so much, um, compared to uh, you know ninety nine point nine percent of the people listening, you've done so much. It's just a lifetime worth of achievements and, and and adventures. For someone with this experience, with this mindset at this age, what what is next for you? What are the things that you look forward to now? And I'm I'm quite content with the fact that as an ultra endurance athlete, you know, I don't need to cycle around the world again. I'm I, I really do see that as my my Everest. But I I really enjoy a change of challenge. So I've never been a traditional athlete who, you know, enters a race and then enters the same race and then enters again. Um the round the world is the only thing I've done twice. I've never really been a part of anything more organized or 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 a sort of an event. So there's still a bucket list of some of the world's most iconic endurance races and events that I would absolutely, you know, love to to test myself in and be a part of. But I also feel that the next chapter in my career, um, I want to do more to, um, I can't, this is kind of where we started. I kind of want to do more to give other people the quiet confidence to push their ambitions. I've just published a book called Endurance, and it's basically trying to unpack all the stuff I've learned over my career and speaking to people I really respect in in the industry who, you know, have wise words to say on on, on the topic. And you know, if I can, if I can, if it's not going to be to ride around the world, but if I can give them, I was going to say the next generation, but it's not like the kids. It's people of all ages. If I can impart the confidence and some of the toolkit to to push push ambitions in all in all you know it doesn't need to be on the bike that's that's something i'd love to focus on and as an athlete i continue to try and test myself in different ways i still think i've got that kid inside me and it's it's funny how when you build a public profile around something people want to put you in a box like oh you're that guy just get on your bike and do another big road ride and i you know i've spent most of the last year gravel riding and and doing 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 running expeditions i was obsessed for about a year just before lockdown with trying to break the oldest one of the oldest cycling records in the book which is the arrow record on a penny farthing so i've got a racing penny farthing you know from the victorian times and um the 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 the, the arrow record stood at 22 miles 150 yards and it was set in connecticut in the u.s in 1883 and i spent just over a year trying to break that record and people keep saying to me like why do you keep taking such weird tangents and doing completely different things just um 18 months ago i was trying to climb the world's highest volcano and do a 300 kilometer descent from the summit and everyone was like you're not even a you're not even a mountain biker like why but i quite like that change i quite like completely different challenges and pitting myself against different environments how much respect did that uh penny farthing attempt give you for the cyclists well over a hundred years ago? <laughs> That's a great question. That is a great question because do you know what? There's an arrogance, isn't there? There's an assumption that we must be better. We must be stronger. We must be faster. The the guys, and I'm not being sexist with that comment, but it was all guys that raced back in the 1880s. Um, those athletes, those first 
cycling athletes were phenomenal. I mean, there's some pretty legendary stories in terms of, you know, even through to the first Tour de France in 1903 and those early stage races, you know, what they were taking and how they how they performed. But I mean, let's not take away from the fact that they were phenomenal athletes. I could not with, you know, OK, I was on a very traditional penny farthing, but I still had clipped in shoes, you know, Lycra, you know, a teardrop aero helmet. Like I took every modern advantage I could. And I'm, I'm a pretty strong rider. I could not break the record that was set 130 years ago. So respect where respect's due. Those those guys racing around in tweeds were phenomenal. When, when I first heard you were doing that record or read that you were doing your record and, and, and looked up the video, I just assumed you'd be <laughs> wearing a tweed jacket, a, a, you know, a, a, you know, penny loafers, a top hat. I just assumed you'd be in that dress, but no, you looked like a modern cyclist. And I thought, oh, he's going to just absolutely destroy this. And the fact that you didn't, made me think who the hell was the athlete that set that record and what would they do today <laughs> and, and and i mean if you think if you think you're a good bike rider i would encourage you to try a penny farthing see if you can get your hands on one because it's the ultimate fixie so my racing penny farthing's got a 54 inch wheel so the longer your leg length the longer a wheel you can ride because you're literally sitting on the wheel and the radius so to the the middle of the wheel is your leg length so if you're a shorter rider you've got a smaller wheel You've got no air in your tires, no brakes, and you're sitting on top of this thing. And the only way to go faster is to spin your legs faster. Uh, there's no gearing, obviously. So you're going a cadence of like 140 around a banked velodrome. When we tried it indoors at the Derby Velodrome, it's a 43 degrees banked corner, super steep. And you're on something which is like being on horseback. You're so high and you're banked over on this thing. I mean, talk about mind over matter. It's one of the most focused <laughs> things I've ever done as an athlete, trying to hold that thing on an indoor velodrome for an hour. It was it was a test. It was amazing. Uh, I'm not sure I want to do it again. Wow. That's unreal. Unbelievable. That's so neat. I, lo I love what you're doing. I love the direction you're taking this new mindset. And um, yeah, and about your book, uh, I, I'm sure people can find that at your website. Is there anywhere else you would like to point them to look for it? Yeah, I mean, um, Endurance is actually only available on GCN on Global Cycling Network at the moment, so you can get you can get you can get it there. It's it's, it's brand new out. Um, all my other books I've written, four other books are sort of expedition books. They're 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 widely widely available on Amazon or wherever you get your books. Um, but uh, yeah, I quite like this new one because it was an opportunity not to not just story tell, but actually to it's all the frequently asked questions. Um, I get emailed or, um, you know, social media messages every day with people asking for hints and tips. And it sounds, it feels a bit cheap just to say buy the book, but I have literally spent the last six months trying to pour out my sort of thoughts and wisdom on this. So I'm, I am, I am really proud of it. That's awesome. It looks like everything from, from planning an adventure to, to the mindset, the science behind it, all the important things that really the things that you have learned over the years put into put into something to hold and something to read and consume. Um, fantastic. And, and I'm getting a copy. This is awesome. I'll, 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 I'll absolutely send one across, but the, the, the interesting part, I think for anyone listening, who's interested in adventure endurance planning, the assumption, uh, what I call the familiarity bias with most athletes is, you know, it's all about training. 
It's all about training. It's all about fitness. Training is like the second last chapter. It's it's right at the end of the book because, you know, the psychology, the logistics, uh, a lot of the nutritional parts, they're what set you up for success. I remember I spent years, three and a half years, ocean rowing, trying to row a boat further north than anyone's ever gone before through the high Arctic and then break the mid-Atlantic rowing record. And, you know, there's a classic sport where all people do is sit on the erg, sit on the concept too and, and row. And you know what? Yeah, you need to be physically strong, but that's not what defines success. You know, the prior preparation, the logistics, knowing in that sport, you know, the electronics on board and, uh, you know, the weather, the weather routing and all that stuff. People don't realize their own familiarity bias in expeditions. And, you know, you, you actually train at your peril. It, you know, if, if, if you think of everyone who's gone for the circumnavigation world record over the last 15 years, most of them have just attempted it as bike riders. So they just like, I'm, I'm six foot three and 90 kilos. I don't know what that is for us, but I'm a big guy. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not, I'm not the world's best bike rider. I think you've got to get, you've got to get, you've actually got to get away from the training to be, to be good at these big expeditions. The training is, is only one part of the puzzle. And that's, that's what I was trying to get across with the book as well. And like train for sure, get the conditioning. But when it comes to big expeditions, the trick is not breaking down, is not injuring, is having the ability to literally endure. It's not really about how out and out strong you are or how much you can bench. Wow. You and I are literally the exact same size. So, um, it's good to hear. Good to hear. I've got, I've got this <laughs> maybe ability, but Mark, man, I, there's, there's a million more things I could ask you. I, I, I think you've just got such a unique mindset. I, I, I don't, it's, gosh, it's so crazy just how you can just you make yourself do these things and, and, and make it happen. It's mind boggling, but thank you for joining the adventure sports podcast and uh, just sharing some wisdom, sharing some stories. I, I can't wait for this episode to come out. Oh, you're an absolute gent. Thank, thanks for having me on, and uh, I'd love to come back at some point. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.